1: FM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matt's Blaine this week. I know I sound a little bit better this week. I don't sound like I've been diving underwater and, uh, you know, my nose is all over the place. I actually have a voice as well this week. Um, But, Matt, when you told me um, you wanted to go into uncharted territory this week, I thought you meant space, but it seems like we're talking about memory and um, loss today.
0: Hey, Rich. um, Yeah, so I I know uh, on uh, BizBytes earlier this week, uh, I kind of intimated that we'd be doing more kind of AI and future work type stuff, Mm. and that wasn't quite the case. But I thought if I talked this one up, people might decide not to tune in, um, which would kind of be a shame because, um, you know, I I think it's quite an important uh, topic. Mm. Um, But before we go into it, I'm going to do that thing of asking you a question. Huh. I mean, I don't. Have you kind of fallen back into the the habit of doom scrolling?
1: Now I want to say no, but if I'm being honest, uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, particularly at bedtime.
0: Right now, that's that's the thing. Um, because I kind of have as well, and I thought it was just me. And mm. you know, for people who don't remember doom scrolling. It was that that thing that happened early in the pandemic where you were just looking for uh, all the doom and gloom that was coming into your feed. And as you said, often late at night, just sort of staying awake and looking at all this stuff. Mm. Um, but it does seem that doom scrolling has returned. You know, there's a, a, a lot of reasons for it. Um, you know, there's the uncertain economic situations. There's war in Ukraine and Gaza political instability across Africa, you know, all these empowered authoritarian leaders all over the place. Uh, And there's this creeping sort of sense on all sides of the political spectrum that uh, freedoms are being eroded, but that the other side is to blame. So it's kind of like the world had a collective stroke during COVID (laughs) and everyone has kind of lost their social filters.
1: All right, I'll bite. Where are you going with this?
0: Well, I reigned in the urge to say to infinity and beyond. Um, so maybe I am getting better. Um, no, I, I think it's that that idea of mortality and that, that kind of constant push-pull between technology and, you know, our physical lives. Mm. Uh, that the technology makes things better with one hand, but makes it worse with the other. Or at least, you know, that's how we feel about mm. what it's doing now. We've done a a bunch of shows on the topic of uh, electronic record keeping, privacy, uh, history, um, and we've covered a lot about, you know, how secure those records are, not necessarily in terms of the the data privacy, because we know in terms of security and privacy, we know that most of the the records aren't that secure, but more in terms of longevity and preservation Hmm. you know will people in the future be able to access read the files that we record every day and does that really even matter you know does my personal cache of cat photos contribute to the historical record of you know some future society
1: Yeah, but isn't that kind of the point, though, that we we don't need, we don't want, sorry, that we don't know what future societies will deem important?
0: Well, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, when we look at the the, the kind of artifacts and the records that we have uh, from all of these various sources, we've been able to piece together you know, things like what people ate at different uh, points in history. Now, that might be from records of recipes going back as far as, you know, ancient Rome, the ancient Egyptians. Uh, It could be from uh, the analysis of bones found in archaeological sites, uh, which give an idea of what species of animals or birds or fish people were eating. Uh, we find things like remains of seeds and grains in the places that people cooked. And that gives us insights, you know, n- not into uh, just into what they were eating, but how healthy they were, how healthy mm. their diets were, and what people in different economic strata ate. So, you know, we, we know, for example, roughly what people ate at a kind of citizen level in ancient Rome versus what sort of consuls ate. Mm. Um, so when you look at it from that point of view, you know, all of those food photos that we take every day might one day be useful to catalogue diet in our own sort of society and civilizations
1: but I, I, I guess only if those records are usable
0: yeah now and that's kind of the bigger point you know there are all these sort of various digital format preservation in, in, initiatives going on around the world uh, but preserving formats and preserving the knowledge for those formats isn't the same as being able to to use them Mm. uh john norton in a in a recent guardian piece titled preserving our digital content is vital he used this example of a meme i think it was uh nasa technicians and they're in a control room and they're celebrating that images from a probe that was sent out sort of 30 years ago are starting to to be beamed back to to reach earth so you know everyone's celebrating and then someone cuts in and says who remembers how to install windows 95
1: because of (laughs) course
0: that's the technology of the day yeah we know what windows 95 is we have knowledge of of that information but do we have any machines left that can actually run windows 95 Mm, do we mm. have to build emulators that will actually run that software Mm. so we have a real and contemporary problem with the past so previous generations obviously recorded everything in analog so it was in books it was on paper it was on walls it was in portraits photographs even in sheet music mm-hmm. and even though over time you know 90 percent 99 percent of that information is lost or destroyed enough of it remains for us uh to have to to be able to get a really useful look at the past. But the thing is, is that the same case with digital technology? You know, Mm. what happens to all of those emails and photos and TikToks when we aren't around anymore? Uh, So again, John Norton uses a a great example. Uh, When Google's founders came up with the idea of scanning every single book in existence, they approached a, a large US library and the library enthusiastically agreed, yeah, of course we want to be part of this. But one of the librarians asked uh, Sergey Brin and whoever a a question, what happens when Google doesn't exist anymore? And apparently that flummoxed the founders so much because they'd obviously never thought about the company not existing. Mm. But that's not even The real question, the real question is not, will Google exist? It's why would it still exist? Uh, Most technology companies disappear relatively quickly. Uh, I think there's an average of something like about 20 years for most technology companies. And we have examples right in front of us. I mean, Twitter's bonfire demise is literally unfolding In front of our eyes
1: yeah particularly if you watch anything on cnn lately um that was an interesting kind of backwards and forwards did you see that just uh going off a little tangent oh no i haven't actually oh uh, well, i'll leave that to you for you to watch during uh, well you're gonna um,
0: have to you're gonna have to tell the the listeners what it was okay
1: so um essentially um I, elon musk was on a, a cnn show <clears throat> and he was asked about um advertisers pulling out of his platform and uh, in particular, the uh, announcer from CNN referred to Disney about, you know, how do you feel? And he basically said to Elon, uh, yes. how do you feel about advertisers pulling off your platform? And Elon's response, you know, was was quite... An expletive, you know, yes. Yeah, an expletive, I, sorry, yes. I, I
0: did hear about that. I think it was um, uh, during a, a fireside at the uh, New York Times uh, book conference or that something was along yes. those lines. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and he 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 basically said, "Well, they can go and explet themselves, Um, you know." Anyway, yes.
0: After just apologising for uh, swearing, yeah, for swearing and uh, you know making it a place that's difficult for advertisers, then swear to the advertisers. So twice, in
1: fact, twice. Now, um, anyway, so obviously we're we're talking about information, data, images, text becoming uh, obsolete or inaccessible uh, for more practical reasons than technology moving on.
0: Well, yeah, of course. So th- this is something that people face every day. You know, unless you've shared your your passwords with people, your digital world becomes basically a lockbox once yeah. you die, once you pass on. So some elements of it might be public-facing. So, you know, obviously those social media accounts where if your profile is open to the public, you can still see the information on those accounts. Um, but what about all the information in your devices, in the cloud, the stuff that you haven't shared socially, the the personal memories, the thoughts and communications. You know, it's not like we're all politicians who can shed our identities and claim our phones have been wiped whenever they face a a public inquiry. Uh, And of course, once those accounts aren't being accessed, how long before they're routinely wiped or or recycled by the company that ultimately owns them. So Mm. we've had a couple of stories uh, recently, um, Twitter eliminating dormant accounts and recycling and selling um, usernames. And, of course, the one that you brought up on BizBytes this week about Google's plans to delete inactive accounts. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in both of those instances, the issue of, the deceased came up. Um, hmm. What happens to accounts that belong to, to people who've died? Because it can be really hard to convince tech companies to give you know, the, the, the beneficiaries, the estate, access to those deceased persons' accounts. And hmm. sometimes it is physically impossible.
1: Hmm. We wouldn't be talking about this unless there was a solution.
0: Well, yes, there is a solution, sort of. Um, there have been various companies, and I think, uh, hilariously, I covered one with Jeff on this show many, many years ago, and their business model was to convince millennials then in their early 30s to pay a monthly subscription every month for the next probably 60 to 80 years to preserve their digital legacy Uh, unsurprisingly that that company went out of business after just uh, a few years but that's the irony Uh, as we said most tech companies they don't live longer than about 20 years the company Mm. died uh, decades before the majority of its customers its users would actually need to access its services Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that you know it, it it proves that point about longevity. If a company can't outlive you, how can companies help to preserve your memories?
1: And this is where ChatGPT linked to a stone tablet carving app comes in i guess
0: that's actually not a bad idea you should <laughs> you should do that you should market that i think it's time to uh, to buy up some stone quarrying sites in Pahang or or something right and maybe yeah, put yeah. that on the on the market of the market um no this is this is actually about automatic which is the company uh, that owns the blogging platform wordpress now earlier this year they announced a 100 year plan um the idea was that uh, your site, your WordPress site or whatever you're doing uh, on any of their, their, their platforms would stay live and active for the next century. So presumably that would go up until after you die. I mean, I, I can't imagine what you'd feel like if you've got a renewal notice on your 120th birthday, for example, saying that your domain <laughs> is about to expire. Um so on the face of it, this is a great idea to give people that security for for the long term. The only problem was the price they announced. Mm. For some unknown reason, they calculated the price at thirty eight thousand US dollars. What all to be paid upfront? What now? If you're talking about large companies, if you're talking about high net worth individuals, of course, they're already likely to have their own domains. Mm. They have the resources to arrange for sites to exist pretty much in perpetuity. But where is the constituency of everyday bloggers who can drop $38,000 to secure their, their legacy? You know, the, the average WordPress content maker is probably Totally unable to kind of raise that kind of money.
1: And they're probably using WordPress because it's the cheapest option or one of the cheaper options. Exactly. I mean,
0: that's the point. So,
1: anyway, is this just, uh, and we hear about this all the time, another example of out-of-touch behavior by, you know, another Silicon Valley bunch of millionaires? I
0: mean, genuinely, I I don't know. I mean, I imagine that they've sat down and some kind of multiplier effect has been used. Um, Someone has done, you know, some kind of forecasting on costs and dollar values and inflation over the next 100 years. So that might be a genuinely reflective cost. But when you break it down, it equates to $380 a year. That Mm. is a lot more than most People spend to host their blogs on an annual basis. Yeah. Uh, of, and of course, you know, that number of people who operate blogs is, of course, diminishing. Mm. Uh, but I think the the more worrying aspect is what it says about the value of knowledge, because this idea um, kind of promotes the idea that it's only the the ideas, the information, the content of people who can afford it that deserves... To be archived. It's a very strange way of assessing value.
1: Yeah, but how is that all that different from the past, though? I mean, if, if you look, you know, wealthy people would commission histories, biographies, portraits, pyramids, you know, uh, <laughs> stuff in Pompeii, you know what I'm talking about, to kind of chronicle and preserve their lives. We've seen this, we, we know that.
0: Richard is actually planning a, a pyramid in his back
1: garden as we, as we speak. Um, Be careful, you know, the I, foundations are in already. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's doing
0: all- <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I get it. I don't disagree with you. Um, but of course, the 20th century, to, to a limited extent, saw a more egalitarian approach. Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of those kind of cultural and income divides were reduced. But the 21st century seems to have catapulted us back to those kind of 19th century values. Mm. Uh, Hence my reference to, you know, doom scrolling at the start. Um, But it's rather a a kind of high tech 19th uh, century, rather than that kind of romantic vision of a steampunk uh, Victorian era that we have. You know, there's a lot of people. um, We have a lot more education now. And as a result, there will be a lot more ideas that have been ignored, overlooked or simply not shared with people it would be nice to know that if not all at least some of that content in is saved even if Mm. most of it is just mundane and trivial because history in a lot of ways is the science of the mundane you know sifting through the archaeological remains of somebody's campfire is mundane but it's also extremely important yeah, And, you know, perhaps there's kind of a, an outside chance that in the in the future, some kind of, you know, Douglas Adams-level supercomputer might be able to look at all that content and present those ideas to future historians for analysis. Um, and I, if that sounds a bit weird, it's really not that unusual. I mean, just go to uh, the website informationisbeautiful.net They have a great list of scientists whose ideas were initially ignored or overlooked. And that includes people like Ohm, Pasteur, Tesla, all of which are, of course, literal household names to us today.
1: All right. OK, when we come back then, we're going to be continuing a theme with the controversial idea of a digital life. After death. Stick around. This, of course, is Matt Splane here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
0: Being first matters. BFM 89.9.
1: BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Uh, welcome back to Matt's Plain. Um, it's one thing to preserve your digital content after death, but does the same apply to digital avatars that use AI to recreate your appearance and personality? And what happens when someone resurrects you after death, without your permission, I have so many questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get through all of them. But um, you know, we've we've covered grief tech on the show before. But usually, we've covered it in terms of individual apps, uh, mm. not in terms of you know their, their overall impact on the actual grieving process. So there are plenty of apps out there. Um, And of course, they're rapidly developing in terms of ability and scope because they're integrating AI and machine learning. And those tools are progressing so rapidly. So you can get everything from a kind of generic chatbot to fully animated video avatars that can seemingly answer questions on the fly. So, uh, a lot of this information I sourced from a, a New Scientist article called uh, How AI Avatars of the Deceased Could Transform the Way We Grieve. Please, New Scientist, God work Lord. on your headlines. Uh, this is by uh, a writer called April Reese. Now, the article uses the example of the mother of the founder of a company called Storyfile, which is a, a conversational AI company. She created an avatar to speak at her own funeral and answer questions from friends and relatives. Now, Richard's head has just wow. snapped up as I <laughs> as I said that. Um, now, I should point out, Storyfile isn't specifically uh, a company dedicated to, to grief technology it positions the service more of a kind of uh, as you were saying uh, earlier i think off camera you know this idea of um uh records photography and mm. whatever sort of physical representation so it positions itself more as a kind of audio visual fo- uh, photo album that actually then records stories about people as well and has these kind of interactive components with the the avatars. Uh, It has a list of something like 75 questions that people can answer and you upload video clips So and it processes and creates an avatar around this. So if people ask questions within those 75, it will give you these kind of canned responses. But uh, it's something that, of course, somebody actively chooses to do. They choose to answer those questions, they choose to upload those videos to actually create this kind of, you know, digital uh, representation of themselves.
1: So it's a bit like having your portrait painted like we talked about earlier.
0: Well, exactly that. Um, you know, that, as I said, you know, we're kind of coming around full circle to the the 19th century again. And uh, <laughs> um, now StoryFile's main business uh, it seems there's conversational video bots for for companies. So, you know, customer service, that kind of thing. This is just a, a consumer facing bit that they do. Um, but this isn't really about the apps and the websites and, you know, what features things have. I'd rather talk about the impact of this technology, as you mentioned at the start. Is it beneficial? Is it harmful? Um, is it something that you should do without someone's permission? Mm. You know, I know that there are uh, Black Mirror episodes. There are plenty of sci-fi examples. I think the movie Her, for example, that cover or overlap with this area. So it's not a concept that's exactly new to people. What's new is or are these advancements in the technology that make it much more accurate? Um you know, essentially what it is, is an algorithm recreating someone from their voicemails, from videos, from texts. It's copying their speech patterns. It's copying their, their written word patterns, their facial expressions from from videos. And it's, you know, it's the dead interacting with the living. It's kind of recreating an aspect of, of essentially someone's being.
1: I did see a video recently of an Irishman who. This is not a joke, by the way, because um, it normally starts with an Irishman books. Anyway, he recorded a joke of himself being locked in his coffin that was to be broadcast on the day of his funeral. Did you have you seen that video?
0: No, I haven't, but um, I can imagine that being the kind of thing that I would do.
1: It was hilarious, you know, and it. it but that, anyway, and this kind of gets me thinking about, you know. Before we do get any deeper into the ethical side of things, is this idea of grief tech something new?
0: Well, no. I mean, we've already mentioned the the portraits and the and the biographies, um, uh, but, yeah. but people looked at photography as a form of grief technology in the Victorian era, uh, because yeah. that was, you know, the first time that people had an accurate representation of a loved one on your wall. Um something to remind you of the person and something that you could actually talk to. You know, suddenly Mm. it wasn't just really rich people who could probably get not terribly accurate portraits done. Um, Mm. Suddenly, you know, the middle classes could afford certainly the early photographs and prices dropped making it accessible to people across classes not on a you know on a daily basis but something you could do a family portrait sort of once a year Mm. or once every few years and when you think about all those um, incredible pioneer era photos from the US you know miners covered in dust and people going into like saloons and they're being this you know photography sort of booth or whatever in there so we've always kind of used or leveraged technology as part of our grieving process as that technology develops.
1: Yeah. But how does it change the dynamic once you move from a a static image or, um, you know, a set of memories on paper to a digital creation that can seemingly quote unquote interact?
0: Well, again, you know, we, we have this technology gap. So technology comes out first and we can only sort of figure out its impact later on so because grief tech has now been around for a few years we are starting to get the results of research to to sort of show what the impact is uh so last year psychologists at the open university of catalonia and the autonomous university of madrid spain i love the idea of an autonomous university by the way yeah. it makes you Think of those kind of automated diners from the 1920s. I can just imagine this kind of robot-filled university. Anyway, um, (laughs) back to the point. So um, they compared um, interactive apps to the growing popularity of online memorials. So, you know, people attending funerals virtually from a a web streaming camera in the, the funeral home or the church or wherever. And They note that like any kind of social media, grief technology firms have an incentive to keep mourners hooked because they want you to use the service in the same way that Facebook wants you to keep coming back. So there is this concern that the compelling nature of these services, of that content, might actually disrupt and actively, in some cases, prolong the grieving process.
1: Is this linked to the stages of grief?
0: Well, it more closely corresponds to evolutions of that thinking. So um, the popular idea has been that, you know, there are five successive stages of grief. So you start with denial, you end in acceptance. But that's kind of being transformed or or kind of modified. Uh, Research from the, the Grief, Loss and Social Stress Lab at the University of Arizona suggests that grief is actually a, a kind of learning. Mm. So at first, we expect that the person who's died is going to walk in and resume their normal life. You know, you look at the the kitchen table and the the empty seat, um, and our mind looks for proof of them doing that. And the argument is that this is an example of uh, semantic and episodic memory clashing. I mean, I'm not going to go into details about that. It's fairly self-explanatory. So learning to reconcile these two is part of that process of adapting to the loss. So those emotional roller coaster moments that people go through while they're grieving are actually an essential part of that adaptation, you know, being incredibly happy one minute and sad the next. That's part of the, you know, the process for want of a better term. But grief technology by creating this compulsion to see the deceased person has the potential to actually keep you in stasis to kind of maroon you in in one place because that person is still a click away Uh, you know you you can in some ways fulfill that craving for the person to walk through the door and sit down as at the table as it were so of course your mind doesn't have a need to progress
1: So it's essentially stimulating the reward centers of the brain.
0: Yeah, so the Arizona team notes that um, a a small percentage of people experience prolonged grief. Uh, I think um, it's around 10% of people. And MRI studies have shown that that grief actually changes brain structure. So, essentially, the attention center of the brain becomes hyper focused, and mm. that makes it very difficult to detach from those memories of the deceased. Because essentially, mm. you know, you're reprogramming your brain just to focus on those issues. Mm-hmm. So, there's this risk that grief technology could push more of us into this kind of cycle of. Prolonged grief because our reward centers are being activated. So there's that potential for the attention center to focus too deeply on that avatar, on that digital recreation. So you don't experience that evolution of emotional processing. Now, obviously, that's a kind of simplistic version. You have to go and check out the the article for the kind of full neurological breakdown, but that's sort of an overview of, of. what could happen?
1: I'm wondering if there's like a, a, a counter example, you know, like the Avatar at the funeral, where this kind of technology is beneficial.
0: Sure. Um, research from a, a team at a number of universities um, across the UK, the US, and Japan, including at my uh, my alma mater, the University of Kent, um, they have found that grief tech can be beneficial, uh, and especially in cases where the death was unexpected or left mourners with, you know, regret or anger, you know, that unfinished business, Mm. Um, which does suggest that these bots can help um, with those feelings of anger and loss that people feel when, you know, relationships are are kind of broken without warning.
1: Are there any um, guidelines around how this tech has been used?
0: Right. So I want to make it clear that I'm not, trying to make a case that you know grief apps grief technology is a bad thing or that the developers have bad intentions that they're trying to get you uh, hooked on services but as with you know a, a lot of technology surrounding um, or built on ai and machine learning there is a lack of certainty in regulation so who owns that digital copy of the person, for example? So what happens if someone who is benefiting from using one of those apps is suddenly cut off from it, either because mm. the startup closes down, as we mentioned earlier on, or if that person's financial circumstances change and they can mm. no longer afford to pay a subscription? You know, what are the ethics and morality in closing the door on the person, um, being able to talk to their partner child parent or friend because they can no longer afford to you know if you market these products as a therapeutic tool how do you ensure that people are going to have continued access to them Mm. um you know for a grieving person to come to the realization that their mother or father or what passes for them in the living world is the property of a private company that's quite a disquieting thought
1: yeah yeah and there is also that flip side. You know, in the earlier example, um, the founder's mum had chosen to create an avatar to appear at her funeral. What about the creation of these avatars which, you know, without, without consent? And we're hearing about things happening without consent moving forward.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine if it's kind of for private use, there'd be a strong case for It to be allowed. But, you know, it harks Mm. back to that example of Will Smith and Gemini Man, where the studio owns a CGI version of him. And Mm. him in interviews struggling to get his head around that idea. Now, he probably has a fairly watertight contract concerning, you know, use and exploitation of that model. But there's still that knowledge that there's a version of his face that a company physically owns. And it's not a photograph. It's a 3D render that can be animated. It can be made to talk. It can be made to act. It can essentially do what he does on screen. Mm. Um, Mm. But what if someone has said that they don't want their friends or their family to recreate them post-mortem? You know, do we we respect those wishes? Uh, Again, you know, if it's for private use, you could argue someone who did it against the wishes of the person, that's that's fine. If it helps them to to grieve, I guess, go ahead. But what if that person chooses to share video sessions on social media? That could be very hurtful to other family members.
1: I mean, in the UK and in other places, we have the whole DNR uh, law, you know, do not resuscitate. We'd have to like implement something like, Do not reanimate, I guess. Well, yeah, or do not Um,
0: republish, yeah.
1: Or do not republish, yeah. Um, Yeah, but something like this surely would be even more complicated when you've got friends involved.
0: Precisely. I mean, it could be seen as, you know, grossly insensitive and hurtful, um, just at a very basic level. Um, But imagine as well, it could give rise to multiple digital avatars of the deceased being created by different people Hmm. uh you know it'd be confusing enough that somebody is seemingly returning from the dead but how would you cope with multiple different versions of that person appearing all with slightly different personalities because they're based on the information that those separate people have um those different individuals have different memories of course Yeah. yeah yeah exactly so If I'm being honest, I do find the whole idea a little bit strange. Um, Mm. But, you know, over the past few months, I've been talking to various people about um, memories and, and recall. And I am aware that my experience is different from a lot of people's, that for a lot of people, you know, their mental image of people, their ability to recall faces starts to fade over time Mm. Um, so I'm not dismissing these advances because they don't gel with the way that my mind works but I do think that people should approach them with caution and Mm. perhaps in the future there will be more guidance from the mental health profession you know they'll be used alongside uh, psychologists and, and treatment specialists and there will be guidelines and advice on how to use them you know, without detriment.
1: Thanks for that, Matt. That was really interesting. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I
0: mean, when I read all of this stuff, it is a bit hard to sort of get your head around. But when you start unraveling mm. it, you know, there's there's a lot of good there. But at the same time, I think the negatives haven't quite been considered sufficiently yet.
1: Mm okay folks of course um that was this week's matt's plane and if you did miss any part of the show go and download the podcast wherever you normally get it from um we still recommend the bfm app that's available in the apple app store or google play um do check out matt's other stuff of course you can follow him on x he's at culture Matt. uh linkedin he's at culture pop and culture Matt. and his website is a uh, culturepop.com. have we updated your substat yet
0: Uh, Sorry, my headphones seem to have uh, blanked out. I I didn't catch that last part.
1: (laughs) Never mind. Do join us, same time, same place, next week here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9, the business station.